It was great to be with brothers and sisters in Christ. There is no Presbyterian church on Maui. And I uh, am sensing a strong call from God to continue to make <laughs> periodic mission trips there until I am just certain of the right spot that uh, we, ought to, we ought to plant one. It was a wonderful time for us to be away and to walk on the beach. We didn't do a whole lot of the touristy stuff. We just walked and play, played some golf and swam in the ocean and snorkeled. And it was wonderful and restful and restorative. And then we came home. Um, I'm not a Catholic. I have never been a Catholic, but I'm beginning to appreciate the doctrine of penance. Uh, there's a sense in which if something really great happens to you, you're going to pay sooner or later down the line. And we came in about 11.30 Wednesday night to discover that our furnace was broken, uh, the car would not start, and our fish was dead. <laughs> I was under the house at 11.30 trying to fix this furnace. Uh, we're not sure why the fish died. The cat had nothing to do with it. Uh, so far as we know, all the fact that it was a tropical fish and you could see your breath in the living room when you walked in the door might have had something to do with that little fish not making it. Anyway, it is good to be back with you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. And we continue today in our series on the Revelation. Um, pastor Daryl Johnson, whose uh, sermons I've been reading as part of my preparation for this, he's a pastor down at Glendale Presbyterian Church. He says it is at this point, chapter 6, that most people stop reading the book of the Revelation. And it is at this point, chapter 6, that most pastors stop preaching the book of the Revelation. Why? Because there's some crazy stuff coming. Now, you may say, well, we've been here now for a few months, and there's been some pretty crazy stuff so far. I mean, we saw a man that's like white. His eyes are like fire. He's got a sword sticking out of his mouth in chapter 1. We saw a picture in chapter 4 of creatures with six wings and eyes covering the body. All of that's reasonably weird, I would say. But you ain't seen nothing yet. And uh, we are in now for the next few uh, weeks and the next few chapters. We are in for some hard slogging. We've got some work to do as we move ahead, but we're going to stick to this, uh, to this discipline because I believe the blessing that has been promised to us in this, that if we will listen to this, if we will read this, word, this, uh, this book, that God will offer blessing to us. And as we move into these next chapters, we begin to see the embroiling of the world in battle between good and evil. We finished our way through Y2K without much of a glitch. There was a lot of promise and not much, re, uh, not much that was paid off. But I guarantee you that there are times that are not going to be so easy coming for this world. When God decides finally that is it and I'm going to reconcile all things to myself and that which is in rebellion to me, I'm going to allow it to go the way that it has chosen. And in these coming chapters, we, we begin to catch a glimpse of what that will look like as it, the final chapters of the history of the world unfold and God says, I am calling all things home. And by the time we're done reading these few chapters, we're going to feel like we're standing in the middle. Do you remember that theater down in Disneyland, that 360 degree theater in Disneyland? It is, it's no longer used for that purpose. But uh, the, the camera that was sh they used to shoot this shot in all directions. And so it didn't matter which way you were looking, you were looking at something. A screen was, was moving. The thing was, it was all the same story. When we're in the book of Revelation, often I feel like we're in that same 360 degree theater, but we look up here and here's one picture. We look over here, here's another image, and behind us is something else. It's a cacophony of sounds and sights and colors, almost too much to consume. Now we are going to do our best to unravel these mysteries in the coming months, and by June 11th when this series ends, I hope that we'll have a greater understanding of the book. 
But I want you to remember what I said to you in the very first day as we began. The book of Revelation is spectacle. It is not meant to be so much dissected as it is to be experienced. And we must resist, I think, the temptation to parse every single image and horn and eyeball out and figure out what it means. Even John didn't know what it meant. And if he didn't, what chance do we have? But rather we are to experience it and begin to capture the key themes that run throughout the book as they promise the return of Christ, they promise the consummation of all things, and they promise the restoration of God's kingdom here and in the kingdom to come. That's good news. Let us turn to our text this morning. Revelation chapter 6. Hear the word of God. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! Then another horse came out. A fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages. Do not damage the oil and the wine. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living creatures say, Come! And I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Now, God, speak to us through these unusual and troubling words. And in them, as we face squarely the truth of a world that is riven, both now and in times to come, may we find comfort in the God who does not change, the God who redeems, the God who restores. For we pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, before we move ahead to the breaking of the seals on the scroll, we need to set it in context again. It's been a while since we were in this portion of the, of the Scripture, so I want to go back. If you recall, the context of this is the throne room in heaven, which we found in chapter 4 and 5. Do you remember that story? On the throne, there is seated one that is never named, but we take that to person to be God. Yeah, emanating from that throne is a, an, an emerald-colored rainbow. Out, spread out in front of the throne is a sea-like glass. In the front of the throne are four living creatures that represent the brightest and best of humanity, and of creation, I should say. And around the throne are seated 24 elders who spend their entire existence bowing down and offering worship and praise to the one who sits on the throne. That's the image that we have. And then chapter 5, suddenly John notices that there's something in the hand of the one who sits on the throne. What was it? A scroll. He sees this scroll and he realizes, he has the insight of the revelation that this scroll is the unfolding of the rest of human history. It is the rest of the story. And who wouldn't be interested in that? We are keen to know what the future holds for our lives, for our children, our grandchildren, and for the world as well. 
And so John, along with we who are reading the book, is, is eager to know what's inside of the scroll. But there are seven seals on the scroll. And we hear the voice that cries out, an angelic voice that says, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And with John, all of us look around in anticipation. Indeed, who is the one that will step forward and do this? For we want to read what is on that scroll. But we are met with silence, for it turns out there seems to be no one who is worthy. And in the poignant moment, we see John begin to weep and says he wept and wept. He wept convulsively for no one who was, that was found who was worthy to open the seals and read the scroll. And then one of the elders whose job, or one of the, uh, the elders whose job it is to praise God stops his praise, if you can imagine this act of grace, stops what he is doing and turns to him and says, do not weep. For there is one who is worthy. He is the Lion of Judah. And he is victorious. And so with, with John, we turn to see this great victorious Lion of Judah. But what do we see instead? A lamb. And not just a lamb, it says a little lamb. And not just a little lamb, but a lamb that is what? Slain. His neck has been cut and the blood apparently is streaming down. But here is the one that he declares is worthy to open the seal. And we look again and the Lamb is standing on the throne in the midst of the very one who holds the the scroll. And it is this Lamb who has the audacity to reach over because he has sacrificed himself. Because of his sacrificial death, it is this Lamb who has the audacity not only to stand in the midst of the throne, but to reach over and take the scroll from the hand of God. Who would dare do such a thing? The Lamb of God, the only one who is worthy. That is the context of this reading. And now we come to, at the end of chapter 5, that the whole of creation breaks out into praise for the Lamb and the one who sits on the throne for what they have done for us and what they will do for all of eternity. Now we come to chapter 6, and all of us are now kind of on the edge of our seats. The elders and the creatures are worshiping God. The Lamb is holding the scroll with the seals, and we're saying, will he or won't he? Will he or won't he? Is he going to break the seal or not? We want to see what's in the scroll. And we don't have long to wait for in an exquisite moment of biblical drama. The first seal is broken. And then the second. And then the third. And then the fourth. And the four creatures each time a seal is broken cry out with thunder. Come! And riding forth out of the mists of the heavenly vision. Are what we probably would realize to be the best known images that come out of of the, the story of the Revelation. The book of the Revelation. They are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, you knew they were called that, but you maybe didn't know why they were called that. Remember what the first word of this book is? It's revelation, but what is the Greek word for revelation? Apocalypsis, which means unveiling. So here we have John's vision of the four horsemen of the revelation. Now, what does this have to say to us today? Now, the four horsemen are different colors. They, the colors seem to represent the, the task that the writer is carrying out. We're going to skip the first horse for a moment. We're going to come back. But looks, let's look beginning at the, the second horse. What, what is the color of the second horse? Red. And it represents blood. Warfare. Warfare. This is the horseman that brings savage violence and warfare to the world. Then we see another horse. What color is the third horse? Black. And its rider carries something. What? A pair of scales. And we have understood that to be primarily focused on famine. For he's talking that while this rider, this, this rider on a black horse appears with the scale in hand, the four creatures are narrating in the background and saying, it's going to cost you one day's wages for uh, a quart of wheat. 
Normally, you could buy 15 quarts of wheat and 45 quarts of wheat for a denarius, which is one day's wages. But they're saying it will, when this world that is torn by war is going to find it harder and harder to find even the most basic commodities. And so we see not only warfare, but famine. The fourth, the fourth horse, what color is, uh, is that? It's called, it said pale in the Greek. Uh, not even a color, really. It's the, it's the look of death. And there are several things that are mentioned, famine and wild beasts. But this is taken to be traditionally the, the, the horse of pestilence. For in a war-torn world where famine has taken hold of us, it, it, it is easy then for pestilence to come in, in the weakened conditions of the people. And we read with horror the, the result of the coming of this rider of death, who is followed, by the way, by death personified, which is what death, what Hades is. That's the place of the death. So this, this pestilence, this rider of pestilence is followed by Hades, who picks up the dead. And we are told this amazing thing. How many of the world die as a result of this fourth rider? One quarter of the world's population. This is pretty frightening. This isn't the stuff you want to probably use for Sunday school next week. Warfare and famine and pestilence. Now we skip the first horse. Let's come back, okay? What color is that one? It is white. There is great controversy over the, the identity of the rider of the white horse. Some view this as Christ. Seated on the white horse, the white is the color of, every time we hear of white robes, it is talking of purity. And so some see this as Christ. He's carrying a bow, he has a crown, he's riding into battle. But I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Because the white horseman is not, he's not battling against the other four, is he? The, the white horseman is one of the four. They are a matched set. And I want you to look more carefully at how it reads in, in verse 2. How does he receive his crown? How does he receive it? It is given to him. It is as if he has been given permission for a time to do something. Now, I'm, surely this cannot be the, the same figure who was the lamb only moments ago who boldly takes the scroll from the hands of God. Also notice what it says about him. He says this rider was a conqueror bent on conquest. Doesn't it sound as if he's a pretender to the throne? He's a pretender to power. Is the Lamb of God bent on conquest? Is he intent to conquer? No, what does it say in chapter 5? He has already conquered, isn't it? He is already victorious. Why? Because he shed his blood. The Lamb of God does, does not need to be bent on conquest. The Lamb of God has conquered. So whoever it is that is riding this white horse, he is a pretender. And I would take this to mean tyranny. Along with warfare and famine and pestilence, I take this to be the, 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 uh, the writer of his tyranny, the unjust use of power, the subjugation of the weak in the world. So what does all this mean? I want you to remember back to these words that you've heard certainly in your Sunday school. Listen to them. Many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and many will be deceived. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Nations will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famine and earthquakes in various places and all of these are the beginning of the birth pangs. It was Jesus who uttered these words on the Mount of Olives. The apostles said, the disciples said, we want to know when the end times come. How will we know? And he said, these will be the signs. This is how you will know it is started. And so when we read John's revelation, we are getting a glimpse of what Jesus promised. He, these four horsemen, the, the first four seals as they have been broken, they are the beginning of the end. 
As torn as this world has been already by tyranny, as awash as it has been by the, in the blood of, of hellish wars, as hungry and famine-stricken as parts of the world have been and continue to be to this present day, and as terrifying as AIDS and the Black Plague have been, these are but the beginnings of what the world will one day experience when the forces of evil resist desperately but hopelessly against the Creator God who is going to restore His creation. I want to point out one thing for us today as it speaks to our hearts and lives this day. Did you notice the appearance of each horse was preceded by the same word? What is that word? Come. The creatures, one at a time, cry out the word come, and there comes the white horse. Another living creature says, come, and there comes the red horse. Come, and there comes the black horse. And come, and there comes the pale horse. Did you know there has been a great deal of controversy about this one word, come? The most obvious reading seems to be that these creatures are calling forth the four horsemen. This may be, but others argue that these are representatives of creation. Why would creation call forth those that will destroy itself? Some have suggested that they are calling for John to come and see what is happening. But that doesn't make sense. John is already in heaven. Why would he be called forth to see something he is already looking at? I want to share with you what I find to be the most compelling and challenging of of the interpretations of this passage, and it is this. Could it be that the creatures are actually calling out, come to the Lamb? Could it be that the best and the brightest of creation is praying out loud the second clause of the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, and inviting him to come? Think about it. The Lamb is standing there victorious, praiseworthy. He holds the future of the world in his hand in this scroll. And as all of the heaven in the audience looks on a quiver, he does what no other is able to do. He breaks the first seal and he ushers in the final stages of God's historical plan. And as he breaks the seal, one of the living creatures cries out, Come! Come and bring your kingdom to this earth, Lord. Come and do it. Come and fulfill what was ordained from the beginning of time. Come and do it. Remember that the word... Come is what brackets all of Revelation. In chapter 1, Jesus is described as this. He says, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. And Jesus goes on in chapter 1 to say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and was and what? Who is to come. And then in the last chapter, we see in verse uh, 7, Behold, I am coming soon. In verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon. And finally, verse 17, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let whom who hears say, Come. And then the final cry of the Lord's people in the verse 20 is, Amen, Maranatha, Lord Jesus. Do you know what Maranatha means? It means come in Aramaic. Come, Lord Jesus. The beginning and the end of Revelation all... Or they bracket the whole book with the word, Come, may your kingdom come. Establish on earth what is established in heaven. Fulfill what you have promised you will do. Come, Lord Jesus. The entire book is the revealing, the unveiling of the one who came into history, the one who will come again into history, but the one who comes even now through his spirit and works in history. So I dare to suggest to you that the commentators who say that they are calling forth the Lamb are right. Could it be when they say come, they are begging Him to get on with it, to get going? They're begging the Lamb to say, look at what is going on. Make it right, Lord. We can't take it anymore. Make things right. Complete it. So what happens? They cry out for the Lamb to come, and He comes and everything's okay. What happens when the creatures cry, come to the Lord? 
For if they are calling forth the Lamb, why does the counterfeit champion who would enslave the world appear on his white horse? If they are calling forth the Lamb, why come the red horse of bloodshed and the black horse of famine and the pale horse of death? Why, if we are calling for the Messiah, do things get worse instead of better? Because, in fact, that's exactly what happens in life, isn't it? It is a risky thing to invite Jesus to come. It is a risky thing to invite Jesus to come into your life, into your marriage, into your work, into your finances, into your world. It is a risky invitation because often when Jesus does come at your invitation, things will get worse before they get better. That's not much of a sales job, is it? But it's truth. Why? Because that which is evil in your life wants to cling to that which it knows it's going to lose. Do you remember the wonderful image of Jesus in Revelation 3, 15? He's knocking on the door. He said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone would let me come in, I will come and sup with him and he with me. And it sounds great, doesn't it? We invite him in. What a wonderful thing that Jesus would come into our house and into our heart and enjoy our company. Wonderful that is until you actually find him sitting in your living room. And you look around and you realize to your horror that your house is a mess. Ladies, you ever had that happen? Someone drop in on you and you look around and it's like World War III took place here? Y2K really did hit and it was in your house alone? My friends, it is a risky invitation to cry out, come to Jesus, because when he comes, he takes us at our word, and all heaven breaks loose. He begins to clean house. He begins to change our heart. He begins to change our relationships. He begins to change the way we use our wealth. And honestly, sometimes things get worse before they get better. Do you doubt it? Some of you here this morning are alcoholics. And when you finally and desperately invited God to save you from your beloved liquor, did it immediately get better? No, things got a whole lot worse first. When God's kingdom began to come into that part of your life, every evil force that had its claws into you... How about you cancer survivors? When God brought healing to you, did it immediately get better? You fought your way through surgery and through radiation and through chemo and through hair loss and through hopelessness before God gave you your healing. How about you married couples who almost did not make it? When you invited God into your broken and bleeding relationship, were things immediately better? Mm -mm. Suddenly you had to be honest. Suddenly you found yourself dealing with the pain and the anger that you had buried for so many years. And things got worse. When we invite Jesus to come into our lives, oftentimes things get worse before they get better because Jesus is not content to put a band-aid on a tumor. He will cut it out. He will insist on his perfect healing. The easiest thing might seem to be to leave it alone, to do nothing, but the easiest thing leads to death. The easiest thing is not the safest thing, not the best. Because in our heart of hearts, we know that it is only when we invite Jesus to come that we are ever going to find the victory and the hope and the forgiveness and the peace that we long to experience.
Could it be that the time has come for you to say, come in your life? Could it be that this is the day that the Lord would say, will you finally invite me into this mess of yours and let me clean it up? It may seem to get worse for a moment, but I promise you life. I promise you health. I promise you it will be better. Let us pray. I cannot believe that there are not some here this day who need to invite the Lord to come. And so in the quietness of your own heart, even now, I would ask you to extend that invitation to Him. Maybe you have never said, come into my heart and be my Savior, as some did this weekend. This would be the moment when you would say, Lord Jesus, come. For my life is a mess and I need to make it right. Maybe you have not dared to invite Jesus to come into that marriage. Maybe you've been afraid to invite Jesus to come into that mess of a finance that you have found yourself in. Maybe you have not been willing to invite Jesus to come into that habit that you really don't want to give up but you know is destroying you. And you know that when he does, it will be a painful moment because he is going to take it and he's going to clean it up. But oh, what a difference it will be when the work is done. It may not be easy, but it is good. So right now with me, say again, Lord Jesus, come into our hearts, into our lives, into our circumstances. May your kingdom come. For we pray these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. May the ushers come forward as we receive the blessing of this offertory. Savior
risky invitation to invite Jesus to come because when he does he changes things and sometimes it is painful but in the end it is good and I invite you to make that risky invitation for those of us who have done it have never regretted it to my left in this service and every service there are a group of people who love to pray and if you have anything into which you wish to invite Jesus to come they would love to welcome you and join you in making that invitation so I invite you to come forward and join them following this service And now receive this blessing from the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his perfect peace, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all of God's great people said, Amen. Amen. Could I have the inquirers, the new members, please join me as we exit and say hi to them when you leave today.